Please across whatever you listen to podcasts on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniment to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. Hi. Thanks for wafting in. Thanks for finding the podcast or subscribing to it. Glad we can connect this way. This is episode 34, which we have recorded in April of 2020 and are ultimately posting in May of 2020. And I wasn't using the royal we there, but I'll get to that in a little minute. It's been a while since I've posted an episode. Yes, I know, about five months, six if you count February. I figured it was time to get off my keister and, if I may use that word in public, and record another episode. One of the great things that's happened is that a gentleman who's a friend of mine and a regular at a number of my silent film shows here in New York, uh, Kurt Lockhart, uh, has been in touch with me about coming on as a co-producer and co-host, and we'll be recording episodes over the next couple of weeks so that I am able to post something more often than three times a year. Uh, having an additional brain, body, and voice to help keep me organized and on task will be a great, great asset. We will, of course, be recording from two separate locations. I'm in Manhattan, and Kerr is safely ensconced in Bergen County, New Jersey. It will sound like we're in the same room or the same studio, but it's just that we both own good microphones and have discovered a wonder of technology and the internet that will allow us to do these together. Kerr will be able to keep me on on point, on task, uh, prod me with questions, and, and that sort of thing. And we'll be bringing Kerr on to this episode of the podcast toward the end, so stick around and you'll get to meet him and hear what we have up our sleeves for that segment. And I know this will be a huge help because I've had some help from somebody, an extra person on my DVD projects over the last six or eight months. Uh, a woman named Crystal Kui, who I've gotten to know uh, through her husband, who's the head of the film vaults for MoMA. And she herself is a Selznick grad and has done a lot of great stuff in the world of film preservation and archiving and stuff. Uh, contacted me and wanted to uh, help me out on my Undercrank DVD projects. And really, over the last bunch of months, a great deal of what I've been able to accomplish with getting my DVD projects finished, released, and out the door has been thanks to Crystal. So I gleefully welcomed uh, Kerr's uh, desire to be involved and help out with this podcast. And I think you'll you'll see the benefits as well because you'll get to hear from me in the next month or two instead of waiting till Christmas. This, the idea that Kerr and I were discussing was to make this episode a a, a COVID update, uh, if you will, a quarantine update uh, episode, and then we would launch into new episodes where we cover a lot of the usual stuff. What am I doing? Well, for those of you uh, who are not aware of it, I have created a weekly live-streamed 
silent film show called The Silent Comedy Watch Party. The shows are live-streamed on Sunday afternoons, 3 p.m. New York time. But all the episodes are archived on YouTube, and you can watch anything that you've missed. They're left up there because there are people who watch the show in Australia and Japan and other parts of the planet. And one of the nice things that's come along, uh, speaking of people who helped me out, is that my friend Junko Io, who lives in Japan, has volunteered to do Japanese subtitles for the episodes. So I know episode one has Japanese subtitles, and episode two and the others will, bit by bit, have Japanese subtitles. For those of you living living on the other side of the planet, want to watch the films and still enjoy the commentary from me and the information provided by Steve Mass. But the basic format of the silent comedy watch party is that I live stream and live accompany three silent comedy shorts from my living room accompanied on my piano. Not not a, a digital keyboard. It's my, my acoustic Baldwin Grand. And then we pipe Steve in via FaceTime. We turn uh, FaceTime my wife's iPhone around and point it into the camera. That my, my wife operates that panning back and forth from the wall where my video projector is pointed back and forth to me and or back to the wall or to pick up Steve on the on the iPhone. I had had the idea to do this years ago, but was reluctant to proceed with it because the idea to me of doing a live stream film show of any kind was that it might be a deterrent, if I may use that word, for people you know, going to shows. And it's more important to me that people go to shows and stay at home. Well, I had accumulated lots of the little bits and pieces of hardware over the last few years in attempts to do other video and live stream projects. And so... As I watched all of my gigs fall like dominoes, I assembled a pilot, and this is before the extreme social distancing was going on, and Steve came over, and we were very careful. So uh, I would introduce, and I'd get up from the piano bench, and Steve sat down, did his talk, got up, and I sat down, and we ran the film. And within a couple of days, we were all in our apartments. The two or three shows I still had on the books or on my calendar were dead and the response we'd gotten to the pilot live stream was so moving really that we decided to continue doing this on a weekly basis because what started out as oh you can't go to a show I can't do a show here's a substitute for a show but in this state we're in currently there's no shows to go to and because of the stress and anxiety and what have you that we're all, we're all dealing with right now, I mean, everybody could really use a good laugh or two or three or five or a hundred uh, for an hour once a week. And people were writing in and telling me how much it meant to be able to see these fun movies and, and laugh. And it just took them out of whatever was going on. And so there was more of a therapeutic you know, importance to doing this and it's not just entertainment and it's a very different mindset in terms of programming it's not oh well we make these things line up as a way to bring people in and as it's been shown a lot it goes right that goes right out the window people are thrilled to see stuff that they've never heard of they're thrilled to see one week with Buster. it doesn't matter 
And so the Silent Comedy Watch Party is a weekly show, and we're going to leave it. We'll leave the shows up for people who've missed it or who live on the other side of the planet. And and until the lights come on and the cinemas reopen, we're we're going to keep doing this. The other thing that it's made me think about is the idea of continuing once everything reopens, because I've heard from people on different parts of the world who might otherwise not have an art cinema to go to to watch silent film with live music. And it does provide that entertainment, that culture for people who can't normally get to it. And so maybe doing this in a time when there are cinemas to go to is a way of supporting my big initiative, what I always refer to as audience preservation. People are discovering silent film from the watch party and people are watching with their kids. The dynamic has completely changed because of how much or how little there is to go see or that's available. It's It's been really uh, moving and, and, and it's as much as it's a good deal of work and there's a bit of stress involved, as my, my wife keeps reminding me, you know, we're, we're helping people out showing these really funny films. And it's not just that they're funny. There's something about silent film, that, that aspect uh, where you blend up and into that silent film universe because of what's missing, the sound, the color, and because of that speed up. It's a different existence, and it really... As somebody wrote to me when they uh, sent an email a couple of weeks ago, it's almost, it's transportive, I guess, the way virtual reality or video gaming can be. So that's what I've been doing. It's the only show I, well, there's, there's no shows. I mean, this is the only show I have. It's a show I have every week. My students at Wesleyan are watching the films that normally we would see together in the Powell Cinema at Wesleyan that I accompany live on piano. They're watching it in their lap from video, and it's not really the same thing, although luckily they have had half a semester of seeing the films big with other people with live music. We're having our classes over Zoom, and it's an adjustment, getting used to the idea of we're all watching each other take the class because you know everyone's face is right there. But the uh, interesting uh, side effect of that, if if, if you will, is, is that I, I guess because I'm seeing everyone's faces better as opposed to having everyone a few rows back in the screening room in slightly darkened areas, it's a little e- easier for, for me to connect with them and maybe vice versa as well. I'd like to get to our first recording. There have been a couple of DVDs and Blu-rays that I've done scores for that came out in the last few months. And so we'll get to that. Uh, Now I'm going to play you an excerpt from a piano score I did for an Alfred Hitchcock film called Champagne. Now there's a box set of restorations of the Hitchcock silence that came out, I think, in January on DVD and Blu-ray from Kino Lorber pretty much with the exception of Blackmail and The Lodger, with these, the the quote-unquote Hitchcock Nine, you kind of have to watch them and forget that the, Alfred Hitchcock directed them. I mean, they're, they're decent or good films, but if you keep thinking, oh, this is a Hitchcock picture, you really wish someone get murdered at some point or, 
or two. And Champagne is a, a very light society comedy about a social status and stuff like that. And who belongs and who doesn't belong in higher society or medium middle class and all this kind of stuff. That's all I can tell you. The the I guess the only other challenge besides the time constraint that I had is that the restorations, as good as they look, I think almost all of them are done at 20 frames per second. And I don't know from my own studies of projection speeds what the average speed was in England at the end of the silent film era. I know here in the U.S., by 1928, 100 feet a minute was pretty much average, which is closer to 27 frames per second. And uh, in Germany, things were being run closer to 30, believe it or not. So to see a film running at 20 presents its own challenges. I mean, you won't hear it in this clip, but just from where I was sitting and the journey I was going on, you find yourself needing to add a little bit more energy and drama than there may be up on the screen. This clip starts around 44 minutes into the picture. I don't even remember what's going on on screen, but here are three or four minutes from my piano score for Champagne, directed by Alfred Hitchcock and available on DVD and Blu-ray from Kino Lorber.
that's a few minutes of my piano score for Champagne, a light and fluffy comedy-ish directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And that's on a DVD and Blu-ray box set released in January 2020 by Kino Lorber. I had quite a bit of travel before everything kind of shut down in the middle of March. I was in Beatrice, Nebraska for a few shows, and just a week or two before that was in uh, Boise, Idaho, as I am every year in February for the last, I don't know, 12, 15 years or so. And the occasion was the annual concert uh, by the Boise Philharmonic's Chamber Ensemble held at the historic 1927 Egyptian Theater in Boise, where the orchestra on the first half of the program performed two musical scores for silent films for orchestra, which I've composed. And the second half of the program was me accompanying a silent film on the Robert Morton Theater organ. Uh, The first half of the program this year was my orchestral score to Dog Shy with Charlie Chase. And that was shown in a brand new digital restoration that I produced, acquiring a 2K scan off of the Library of Congress's 35mm preservation material, and which had some digital restoration done by Greg Kimball. It looked spectacular, and the score itself had been commissioned for the orchestra's uh, chamber ensemble a few years ago, so this is the second time we'd hauled it out and performed it, and the film, of course, went over really, really well, and the orchestra sounded amazing. The second film was The Adventure with Charlie Chaplin with a 95% brand-new score by me. The first orchestral score I ever did about 20 years ago was for The Adventurer. The score is synced with the old PD Blackhawk print running at 24 frames per second. The new restoration just looks so much better, but it runs a lot slower and is about five or six minutes longer. So I I went back and I revamped the score and rewrote a lot of it. My own scoring sensibilities have changed quite a bit over the last 20 years, especially for orchestral recording and my experience playing the piano and celeste part for four performances of City Lights as part of the Arctic Philharmonic a bunch of years ago, conducted by Timothy Brock, really affected how I accompany and write for a Chaplin film. So that was the first half of the program. And the second half, uh, the second half of the program was uh, I accompanied Bill Boy 13, starring Douglas McLean, which went over spectacularly. And that DVD is something I released last year. But while I was in Boise, we had an event at the Idaho State Museum in Boise. And for that, I did a brief talk about silent film accompaniment and the work I've done with the Boise Philharmonic. But I also accompanied a silent film that had been made in Idaho. Nell Shipman was a pioneer filmmaker and film star made a lot of what we call wilderness films, uh, and after a bunch of years starring in features uh, that she may not always have had a hand in creatively, she went independently, relocated to Idaho, and and built studios and had her own zoo up up near Priest Lake, Idaho, up in northern Idaho. And there was a series of short films called 
big dramas of little places that were announced in the trades in 24, but the announcement of the actual release by a different distributor happened in 1926. And a couple of those films survive. One of them is The Light on Lookout Mountain. For this program, I acquired a brand new 2K scan off of the preservation material that the Library and Archives Canada has. It's a 16 millimeter reduction from nitrate that I think Nell Shipman gave to the Library and Archives Canada or that they acquired from her. The scan came out really well. And again, Greg Kimball did some digital restoration, especially with the stabilizing and grading and a little cleanup. And the film looks really good. And it's a very nice film. Like a lot of her films, she is out in the wilderness and there's some dramatic conflict or there's a love interest that doesn't go right or something. And then she and elements of nature and or woodland creatures work together to solve the problem. And it's a nice little film. And so I thought it would be good to show to an audience of Idahoans, if that's the right, or Boiseans. And the great thing about this event at the Boise State Museum was the instrument I got to play. It was a, an 1887 Weber Grand Piano. That has a long story about how it got there, but it's been refurbished. But the amazing thing is the sound that came out of it. it I, I swear that it sounded like it, it was being amplified in the room. There's nothing special acoustically about it, but the instrument has such a huge, rich sound. I don't know that it really comes through on the recording, but it was something that really, uh, when I play different instruments at different venues, often the feel of the instrument or the sound it gives out uh, has an effect on me uh, and, and, and on my playing. And you'll get to hear that. And if you want to know more about the piano and its history, go to the Boise State Museum's website. I'm sure there's information there. And so here now is about three or four minutes of my live performance recording accompanying The Light on Lookout Mountain, starring and directed by Neil Shipman on the historic Weber Piano in Boise, Idaho.
recorded live in performance at the Idaho State Museum in Boise, Idaho. Yours truly accompanying Neil Shipman in The Light on Lookout or The Light on Lookout Mountain. I've seen it written both ways. It does involve a, a mountain called Lookout Mountain, so maybe that's it. Accompanying the film on a historic 1870s Weber Grand Piano that's been restored and is an instrument that is used at the Idaho State Museum. By the way, that is how you pronounce Boise with a s and not a z. It's the city of trees and B-O-I-S is the French word for trees. Just a little geography lesson for you. It's Boise. I've been doing things uh, initially with the Boise Philharmonic's Youth Symphony, uh, and then starting 2008, shifted over to the Boise Philharmonic's ch- Chamber Ensemble, the Grown Ups, since I think 2004. And it's great. Every year we sell out the event at the Egyptian with the orchestra and me at the or- organ. You know, seven, 700 people packed in every single year. The audience we get in Boise is of a wide range of ages. You have little kids, medium-sized kids, teenagers, young people in their 20s, 30s, all the way up through senior citizens. It's just really cool. We built up this audience in southern Idaho. I may not get to play in Portanone or Bologna, but there's a, there's a few thousand people in the Treasure Valley who are big silent film fans because of this collaboration that I've had going on with the Boise Philharmonic every single year for the last 15 years or so. In a little bit, I'll be bringing Kerr out to chat with me. You get to know him a little bit. And, you know, one of the things that'll be great about having him on as a co-host is that he'll uh, be able to represent you, the listener. He may have a better idea of the kind of things uh, someone in the audience would want to ask me or I may gloss right over some important detail and describe something and he'll be able to, as we go through more new episodes, say, hey, wait a second, what is what is an Ophicolide and stuff like that. Before I get to that segment, I'll, I'll, I'm going to introduce another recording. There's a DVD and Blu-ray that came out a couple months ago, again, early 2020, called The Intrigue. And it's a film starring and uh, written by Julia Crawford Ivers. You see, one of the things that happened during the production of the Kino Blu-ray box set called Pioneers, colon, First Women Filmmakers, is that as the curators at the Library of Congress were going through their holdings, they found more and more and more material. And so uh, while the box, I think, initially uh, was maybe four or five discs, and then it got expanded to add in at least another disc. There's still more material, and there were enough films directed by Julia Crawford Ivers in the collection of the Library of Congress that another disc of her work uh, as a standalone uh, could be released. It's headlined by this feature film called The Intrigue, and The Intrigue is really re- remarkable. I'd never heard of it, and I discovered it when I got the screener uh, to score it from Brett Wood at Kino Lorber, and it's really quite a good film. The film itself, I mean, the print is in very good shape, but the film, I think it's 1916, 
and she's pretty much the lead, but it's this World War One wartime spy thriller intrigue picture. Uh, she's not the the wife of the spy or whatever, just sort of sitting in the house while everything is going on. It's kind of an extension of the adventure heroes that women were playing in serials in the 19, 1913, 14, 15, 16, along with serials like Pearl of the Army, with Pearl White, and, and, and on and on like that. It, it was a great film to get to discover, and it's well shot, and it's well directed, and the, the, the scenario is quite good, and, and she's really compelling. Very good performer. So what we're going to hear now is three to four minutes of my score for The Intrigue, starring Julia Crawford Ivers, recently released on DVD and Blu-ray, preserved and restored by the Library of Congress. It's The Intrigue.
a few minutes from my score on piano for The Intrigue, starring Julia Crawford Ivers, who is also involved behind the camera on the film's creation. It's a film that is available now on Blu-ray and DVD from Kino Lorber, preserved by the Library of Congress. And that's a film where, musically, I think 1916. So, yes, it's a spy thriller and there's intrigue and trouble and suspense and stuff like that, but I try to stay in the mode of uh, uh, silent film music that I've seen published. If it was a spy picture from 1925, the music might be a little richer or more adventurous. But sometimes, depending on when the film was made, I think in those terms. And not just, oh, uh, Calera Bo, you play Roy 20s jazz music, as opposed to Lillian Gish picture. But a lot of times, to stay authentic to the era of the film. And I don't always nail it. Uh, I'm not a musicologist. But I try to, for a 19-teens drama, play music that's a little bit... Simpler, maybe not as many minor sevenths, etc., etc., just so that it doesn't pull you out of the film. You want it to sound like 1916 as well, that late Victorian era. I mentioned uh, having Kerr Lockhart on as a co-conspirator now. So if you'll uh, imagine opening a virtual digital door. Oh, hello. Here's Kerr Lockhart. Hi, Ben. I think we met first at a silent clown screening, one of those uh-huh. Saturday afternoon screenings. Yeah. Uh, I myself am a, uh, I'm a playwright and a teacher and have been a silent film buff since... Back in those Blackhawk collecting days in the late 60s. And Mm. then my sister gave me the parades gone by for Christmas. And uh, I've been down the rabbit hole ever since. And that's a book I'd like you and I to talk about at some later point. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a book that I, I don't have textbooks for my class, but I assign chapters from Kevin's book for to my students. So... I thought one thing we could do, and then we will tie to the website, is to start a frequently asked question section, because I know you have to answer these questions over and over, and maybe we could start to put some of them to bed. Okay, sure. And I'm guessing the most frequently asked question to you, Ben, is do you make it all up as you go along? Yeah, yeah, I, it's always that, or was that the original score? And I always say, well, it's my original score. Uh, I improvise most of the, almost all the, the scores I do. It's one of the ways films were accompanied. It's not the way films were accompanied, but it's certainly one way they were accompanied. And the guy I learned film accompaniment from, Lee Irwin, who is an improviser, and he was playing for movies in the 1920s himself and learned his craft from the the main organist in his theater in Huntsville, Alabama, when he was growing up. And working that way allows me to have a, a limitless repertoire, which is very frustrating sometimes for theaters that say, well, what you know, send me a list of what you have a score for. I'm like, I, I can play for your home movies if you like. And then we have to figure out what we're going to show people. 
but it's it's improvised and i try to play music that sounds like quote-unquote silent film music or piano music of the era so that i'm staying within the era and in the, the the years when these films would have been made but it allows me to, to sculpt and craft the score to each audience because the way a bunch of silent comedy fans will react to a comedy on a Saturday night is different from the way high school kids will at one o'clock in the afternoon on a weekday, which is different from the way an audience of senior citizens will on a three o'clock show in the middle of the afternoon and so on and so on. And it also allows me uh, a way to make the score better. I can never remember what, what I've done from one show. I mean, usually as soon as the lights are up, it's all gone. But uh, somewhere in my instinct memory banks, uh, I remember how I treated a, a particular scene. And that that's what will come back to me. And I can always tr- try to make it work better at every performance. So it's a mix of, okay, I'm going to do this here. And also being open, uh, being an improviser, not only musically, but I did improvisational comedy for a bunch of years, uh, many, 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 many years ago. And I learned a lot from that, so that informed me as well. But it's the way I work. But I do have some some scores that I've written out for orchestra. And that uh, introduces a lot of threads that I hope we can pick up in podcasts to come. Yeah, sure. So if you've got some questions you'd like me to put to Ben and our frequently asked questions, please go to silentfilmmusic.com, go to our contact page, and send a message from there. Thanks. And as we're heading on our way out in this self-quarantine time, maybe we could exchange a couple of recommendations. I'm going to do mine first. It's very, very time-absorbent. And the recommendation is the brilliant documentary series by Kevin Brownlow and David Gill, Hollywood, a celebration of the silent era. There are 13 episodes and they are as comprehensive a program as you can find about the form and the era. They're great because they are comprehensive, they're accurate, and because Brownlow started shooting interviews in the late 60s when the practitioners of the form were still alive and vigorous and you'll never see interviews like these besides the copious clips it's absolutely unique show that's hollywood a celebration of the american silent film available for purchase or rental on amazon prime what have you got ben i don't really have anything i I (laughs) wish i did uh except for shameless plugs for dvds that i produced and released and released but I would heartily recommend the Douglas McLean collection, which I released on DVD earlier this year, I think. Douglas McLean was a very popular comedian who was turning out two, three, four, sometimes five pictures a year. Made starting features from 1919 to 1927. Nobody knows who he is because most of his films are lost. He himself had prints of all of his films, but Kevin Brownlow actually told me that Kevin interviewed... Douglas McLean's second wife who told him that when they got married in 1938 Douglas burned all of his prints to save on storage fees which is what a lot of people did because who's ever going to watch these things again but luckily (laughs) the Library of Congress has a couple of them that are complete and so there's a DVD with with two of them on it Uh, one is from a a 16 millimeter negative 
and one is right off a 2K scan off of camera negative and looks like it was shot two months ago. It's stunning. It's one I would recommend if you're a silent film buff and you want to introduce somebody to silent film and they think it's going to be flickery and scratchy and hard to watch, let them see one a minute and their eyes will pop at the way this film looks. Yeah, and even Bellboy 13, which doesn't look quite as good, but it looks really good, all things Mm -hmm. considered. And and that's because the digital restoration work that got done on that by Theth Kamarowski, that film just moves, and it does not stop. It's it's a very, very tight, very short five reels. It's 45 minutes, and it just moves and moves and moves and goes from one thing to another. And his personality is just so darn charming. He's just kind of picked up where Doug Fairbanks... Uh, left off when he made Zorro and the Nut and, and never looked back. He he's just so darn likable and and people, just from the comments and reactions I've been hearing from people, people really like him. So I heartily recommend the Douglas McLean collection. I would describe him as analogous in a more modern context to a Jack Lemmon who is not a slapstick comedian, but if you slam the door in his hand, he knows what to do with that. And I'd say right. Douglas McLean That's is a- not. A slapstick artist, but he knows how to be funny with his body and his face, and he even looks a little like Jack Lemmon. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. That's a great. That's a. That's a. That's a great. That's a great tie in there, and uh, fan, a fantastic yeah. bonus on that disc. Yeah, again, from a thirty-five millimeter nitrate print, it's a twenty-minute film. It's a tour of the Thomas Ince Studios, and Ince is somebody who's who was as important a figure as the other two parts of Triangle. Uh, word Griffith and Senate. He pretty much invented the studio system. Was a very dedicated producer, director, and shaper of the films that came out of his studio. And when you see this film and see the the studio facilities he built in 1920, which became the way everybody worked a couple of years later, it's just and it's astounding. And and it's a gorgeous sharp nitrate print. Some of the scenes are color tinted. It's great. You can find it at the Undercrank site or yeah, at Amazon. It's Undercrank Productions. Yeah, Undercrank Productions, and on the on the site, which Crystal Quee helped re rework and redesign the site. And there are links to all the different places you can buy them. All of the DVDs are available on Amazon and Deep Discount and the TCM Shop and Critics Choice and Movies Unlimited and on and on and on all over the planet. So, uh, join Ben and Steve Massa on Sunday afternoons at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. And you can look up on on the uh, blog what time that is where you are. Yeah. Uh, and uh, for uh, the time being. And uh, hope to join you with another podcast pretty soon. Thank you, Kerr. Thanks for stepping up and helping everybody get more out of this podcast and get more of this podcast looking forward to doing more with this as sporadic as, as I'm able to make this podcast happen I do run into people at shows who say, oh I love the podcast I'm listening to your podcast I get so much out of your podcast I'm I'm just thinking oh right I do a podcast oh, it's been a while so this way I'll be able to get more of these out there for you and help spread not only the word but just help fans and anyone interested in accompanying silent film uh, understand about the process, what goes through my mind during, after, and before a show, and all sorts of things like that. Well, I want to thank you for listening. This has been 
episode 34 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell, the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent film. I'm Ben Modell. If you want to stay on top of things that I'm up to, even though there's not quite as many as usual, go to my website, silentfilmmusic.com, and sign up for my emails. And like the old Cracker Jack boxes, when you sign up for my emails, you get a little surprise in your inbox when you do. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Twitter's a little bit better uh, for me, I find, lately. It's a much better platform for people to share. And that's something I talk about on this podcast all the time is this is 2020. I've been saying this for years. There is no such thing as why wasn't this advertised more? There is no advertising. The best way for anybody to find out about something is to hear about it from someone they know. So if you ever see anything, whether I don't care if I'm, I'm involved or not, if you see something related to silent film or classic film that you think that's great, don't just click on like, share it. Retweet it, share it again on Facebook. It's that ripple effect. It's up to us fans to help get the word out. Thanks so much for listening. Subscribe to the podcast wherever it is you hear and get your podcasts. Kerr Lockhart and I will be back in the next couple of weeks with a brand new episode. It'll have that new episode smell of the Silent Film Music Podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. Well, I won't see you. You'll be hearing from me soon. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.